This is Guns and Butter. The encouraging thing, I think, the exciting thing about the present moment is we've been able to to uh, identify two big challenges to this idea of central banks ruling the world, bankers uh, dominating the governments, and the uh, the state as a kind of committee to serve the interests of uh, of bankers, right? As we see most recently now with the European Union in the Greek crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, From Donetsk to Athens, Popular Governments Challenge Privately Controlled Central Banks. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. He is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity and the Tax Wall Street Party. On today's program, we discuss the social, economic, and political revolutions taking place in Donetsk and in Greece. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you so much. There are two social, economic, political revolutions that I want you to talk about, one in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine and the other in Greece. What is the essential feature that these two popular revolutions have in common? Well, I think that's an excellent way to begin uh, in the sense that the um, principal problem of humanity in our time is um, an economic breakdown crisis, right? We have had a world depression since 2008. This has been very severe, and it it really has never gone away. It has ups and downs, but it's still with us. And the uh, standards of living in the developing sector, right, if we exclude from consideration China, which has uh, done uh, a splendid, uh, enviable job in lifting four to 500 million people out of poverty, you'll see that the parts of the world that have remained under the yoke of finance capital from the city of London or Wall Street, that conditions in those places have deteriorated. So um, we have to address this question of the the planetary governance of the world economy. And as soon as we look at this, we find that it is an interlocking system of private or privatized central banks. They all come from the model of the Bank of England in uh, in the late 1600s, right, where you had Newton and Locke buying the shares. Uh, so it's the idea that a committee of wealthy families arrogates to itself the credit powers of a uh, large modern state. There's also the foundation of the Bank of France at the time of Napoleon. Napoleon got a letter from 20 or 30 wealthy families, and they said, look, we... Um, we want to operate as a national bank, even though it's just us private interest families who are going to get all the benefits. We'd like to call ourselves the Bank of France, and we want you to uh, defend us with your troops, and we want to have the legal system rigged in our favor. So if you counterfeit money, you go away for life, if you you know, undermine our monopoly of money, and on and on. So the question of a, uh, of a central bank has always been the idea 
that uh, instead of serving the national interest, you have a, a central bank controlled by bankers operating in secret, not subject to many laws, and somehow they see their principal function in serving the credit needs or bailout needs of uh, a bunch of predatory private financial institutions. And there's no doubt that the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank 100 years ago uh, is precisely along those lines. And after that, this model of Bank of England, Bank of France, U.S. Federal Reserve system, that has spread around the world. So the, the entire planet is really under this yoke. And the question is, is anybody willing to challenge that? And how could it be, how could this existing system be torn down? And what could you put in its place? And I, I have to say from the very beginning, if you go back to Henry Clay and Abraham Lincoln, they, they essentially knew what to do that you've got to have a national bank. And the national bank is like the first bank of the United States in Philadelphia created by Alexander Hamilton, or the second bank of the United States, also in Philadelphia, created by Henry Clay and a group of other veterans from the, from the War of 1812. That's the successful model, the national bank. And variations on that have done very well in places like Japan, the MITI, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, or the Taiwan experience in Taiwan. And we could go through a long list. There, there were elements of dirigism uh, or this kind of um, uh, national banking in a government like that of uh, General Charles de Gaulle of France and so forth. But in our time, this tendency, the, the positive tendency of a Hamiltonian national bank with the dirigistic credit system, in other words, a credit system that tries to promote broad-based economic development, raising standards of living, raising levels of, uh, of wages, um, increased uh, longevity, um, cultural and, and social improvements up and down the line, the promotion of science, the promotion of, uh, of vanguard industries and so forth. Uh, this has essentially, uh, it's, it's died out outside of places like China and, and, and a couple of others. Uh, even in Russia, right, the, the, the neoliberal ideology of the faction that seems to control the central bank is, uh, is an extreme problem. So instead of having uh, a reasonable arrangement, you've got this awful neoliberal ideology, monetarism, um, and the, the idea somehow that bankers do rule the world and they ought to rule the world. So what can be done about this? And the, 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 the encouraging thing, I think the exciting thing about the present moment is we've been able to, to uh, identify two big challenges to this idea of central banks ruling the world, bankers uh, dominating the governments, and the, uh, the state as a kind of committee to serve the interests of, uh, of bankers, right? As we see most recently now with the European Union in the Greek crisis. So here's, here's the insight that I bring to this is the following. In this springtime, April and May of, of 2015, I've had the uh, extremely... Um, remarkable opportunity to visit the Donetsk People's Republic. That is to say, one of the two provinces or oblasts which have been carved out of eastern Ukraine and have become uh, separate and sovereign states, right? claiming sovereignty, perhaps looking towards an eventual union with Russia, but at the moment that is not the reality. Uh, and in particular then to look at what happened in, in Donetsk uh, as a revolution 
of the middle class, a mass strike, which I think has got lots and lots of uh, lessons for people in the United States. If you're interested in radical political change, you better be studying Donetsk, and I'm afraid so far it comes down to a few uh, broadcasts and some writings by me. Uh, I seem to be the one who's got uh, you know the, the monopoly on this, which I don't want to have. I want to. I want everybody to know about it because I want you to support uh, the Donetsk uh, People's Republic. They are doing important things. The most important thing that they've done is that they've nationalized their entire banking system. Their banking system was broke. It was controlled by foreigners from Kiev. It was controlled by uh, people like Kolomoisky, the uh, arrogant and vicious uh, oligarchical bully who wanted to control really the entire country. They didn't want to allow that. So they nationalized all the all the banks, and they kept one group open, the Kolomoisky group, and they used that to pay the pensions of the people. The Kiev government owed it to the people, but uh, wouldn't pay. So in order to avoid a social crisis, the people in Donetsk said, okay, we're going to take over this oligarch's bank, and we're going to pay your pensions out of the money uh, found in that bank, right, out of some, I'm sure, some choice uh, accounts by other oligarchs got got used to pay it. So there's also the fact that in Donetsk, there is no central bank. So they're either using, they were using the Ukrainian Krivnia for a while, and they would also use the Russian ruble. But when I was there, uh, one of the masterminds of this entire process, a guy called Boris Litvinov, written Boris Litvinov, Boris Litvinov, who is, uh, I think, uh, a kind of a genius of this process, he showed a group of journalists, me one of them, what he called a monetary token, which was a, uh, a banknote. You can see this on tarpley.net, um, which was a banknote, uh, which they were going to use as a legal tender. So they've essentially taken over the functions of a, uh, of a national bank. Now, that's, uh, in a nutshell, what went on in uh, Donetsk, right? And I, as I said, I've been there twice. I went there once. I met Boris Litvinov, the economic mastermind. I also met um, Alexander Kaufman, who is the foreign minister. And he was kind enough to invite me to come back uh, on May 11th for the first anniversary of the independence of, of this new uh, country. And they had a wonderful parade down the middle of Donetsk. This is a coal mining town. It was founded by a, a British coal mining expert in the late 19th century. It used to be called Stalina. If you looked on the old Soviet maps, it would, would read Stalino, right? But Stalina in the proper pronunciation. And uh, they had a, a beautiful parade uh, with all kinds of uh, working class elements. In other words, they had a parade that celebrated coal miners, railroad workers, electrical workers, teachers, medical workers. Uh, you compare that to American television, right? American television will celebrate, you know, dope pushers, uh, finance oligarchs from Wall Street, Hollywood degenerates, right? You name it. But in this case, it was working people. So a kind of um, late Soviet cultural atmosphere, which I think is all to the good. It's, uh, it's uh, highly interesting what they've done. But again, for our purposes, what they've been able to do is since they're not a member of the International Monetary Fund, they're not a member of the European Union, they're not a member of the World Trade Organization, they can pretty much do what they want. And they've been um, nationalizing the banks. 
They have a new chain of nationalized, government-controlled supermarkets, which are better and cheaper than any other supermarkets. They've limited the amount of markup that you can practice on uh, goods as it goes from wholesale to retail. It's maximum 30% and not anymore. They are offering collective farms for those who would like to join in them. They are doing everything to maintain coal production at a high level. They're trying to rebuild their railroads. And um, they've also asserted their national independence. Two examples in this case. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell came to Donetsk and told Boris Litvinov and his colleagues, um, we want to take control of your coal mines. So the answer was, yet, get out of here, right? go home. Hunter Biden, the son of uh, Vice President Biden, who with a tremendous conflict of interest, works for a, a uh, predatory uh, hedge fund in, in Kiev. He came in and he said, we want to buy your coal mines. And the answer to that was also, yet, and there's the door, get out of here while the getting is good. Uh, so they've, they've done all this stuff, right? They're rebuilding the transportation system, uh, and they're, they're not worried about uh, IMF rules or WTO rules. Uh, they also want to become and I think they are already, the one thing that everybody needs to be, which is the world leader in something. And their, their something is to be the world leader in machine tools used for coal mining. And they have developed this to the point where Chinese and Vietnamese buyers have been coming to them and looking to make some purchases of these of these things. And all, all the while, they've got to keep the... Um, the railroad system going. They also have another, another, I think, uh, earth-shaking thing, which is in this world of Malthusianism and pessimism and uh, the notion of the limits of growth or the carrying capacity of the earth and how humanity is a cancer on the planet and all this, the line coming from the government in Donetsk is, we don't have enough people. We had 5 million at the end of the Soviet era. We had 4 million when uh, the troubles began last year, and now we're probably down, you know, another million lower than that. We need people, and he said, this is Litvinov talking, I'd like to have three children per family, and I'm willing to back that up with uh, family allowances, with prenatal care, and all the rest of it, because we need people. In other words, he, he's understood the essential fact of economics, which is that people are wealth, and if you're if you're a capitalist entrepreneur and you can't make a real profit out of human labor, you should find something else uh, to do. And in this case, it would be, as he put it, uh, a social state. In other words, it's a it's a a kind of dirigism, perhaps tinged with uh, with with socialism, but but certainly not anything more than that. In other words, it, it's going to be viable. And he says we don't we don't want to put a yoke over the country. We simply want to guide guide the progress. So. There's a successful rebellion against the banks and the central banks going on in, in Donetsk. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, From Donetsk to Athens, Popular Governments Challenge Privately Controlled Central Banks. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let me ask you this. Is Donetsk no longer a part of Ukraine? Not from their point of view, right? If you go to Kiev and you ask this guy, his, his name is uh, Poroshenko, right? The chocolate king. His policies are insane. 
and they're obscene. So uh, from their point of view, uh, that's a separate country. And they have a foreign ministry. And as I said, I met the foreign minister. I've been in the foreign ministry. And they are a separate country. And they are not going to submit to the yoke of Kiev, which they consider, I think, with, with a lot of uh, good reason to be a fascist power. In other words, the, uh, the people who dominate Kiev are the followers of Stepan Bandera, who was the leading Quisling and Nazi collaborator of Ukraine. And he created a division of the Waffen-SS, right, the, the worst killers on the Nazi side. Well, he was, he was a part of that. So he fought against the, uh, the Soviets, but also committed atrocities against Ukrainians against Jews, and against Poles. Another interesting story, right? Today, the Polish government is all in favor of the Kiev regime, but those Bandera people are the ones who killed a whole bunch of Poles in, uh, in earlier uh, days, right? Fighting over where the, where the border should be. So it's an independent country. And again, they don't have the IMF. They don't have the World Trade Organization. They can do pretty much what they want. Who was the new president of the People's Republic of Donetsk? Zakharchenko. Here's, here's a good example. Zakharchenko. Zakharchenko. Uh, he is an electrical engineer who worked in a coal mine, and he is now the president of the country. And I would urge you to, to ponder that. What, what would that mean? Look at this country. You practically have to be a certifiable parasite to get anywhere in the upper echelons of government. In other words, you've got to be a, an unscrupulous lawyer or a predatory financier or some combination of that. I mean, look at who we've had. Or just a demagogue, right? A professional demagogue. But those are usually lawyers, once again. And you've got to get these billions and billions of dollars. The president of the country is an electrical engineer working in a coal mine. And he was close enough to the fighting a couple of months ago to get wounded. He went out there and, and put his life at risk. Imagine that. Imagine a U.S. president doing anything of the kind. Uh, not that we want to have such situations, but I'm just urging you to, to consider this stuff. So... Again, as, as with the parade that honored working people who produce things and tangible physical wealth, manufacturing, gets created, uh, we don't have that, right? It's just unthinkable. Imagine, imagine a 4th of July parade that featured coal miners and uh, railroad engineers and uh, electrical engineers and teachers, right? The most reviled of all the categories these days because of the... Uh, campaign to take down public education. Just think about that. Right? Think about what that means culturally and politically. So I, I have high hopes. I, I, I wish them all the best. And uh, I urge people in this country, stop swallowing the official propaganda. It's a tissue of lies. That woman, Victoria Nuland, rightly said the U.S. had invested $5 billion, $5 billion with a B, uh, into creating these various Nazi and fascist groups in in Ukraine, as well as the the ones that uh, you know hide it a little bit more, but the right sector and such people, right? We've got Yatsenyuk, we've got um, Chanibok. He's the head of one of these organizations, and above all, Yarosh. And Yarosh is uh, probably the most violent. And as his power grows in Kiev, you have more and more political assassinations. When I was there, you had people who were uh, you know critical of the Kiev government were getting. We're getting killed at a at a rapid rate. Well, now let me ask you this about Donetsk because 
Uh, most people have not heard about what you're talking about. Now, is Donetsk no longer under military attack from Kiev? Oh, it's absolutely under attack. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Right? This is uh, the most I've been under fire. Now, I've been in Libya under the bombing, and you'd, you'd hear this faraway whistle of the NATO bombers way up where you couldn't even see them, but the bombs would come down. Right? In other words, death in Libya came as a bomb, you know, destroying a, a building with absolutely no warning. And I saw a man, an engineer, Al-Khwaldi, uh, near, near Tripoli, whose two daughters and wife had been killed by a cowardly NATO bombing raid on his house in the middle of the night. So that was Libya, and that was bad enough. In Syria, the typical situation you'd be in is you're riding in your van between, I don't know, Damascus and Homs, or coming back late at night, uh, and you'd be told, you'd, you'd see that the driver was talking on his cell phone, and then we'd be informed, well, we can't go the way we wanted to go because uh, terrorist rebels had taken over the highway 10 miles ahead of us, so we've got to peel off and go through some circuitous route. Right? That was the, the situation in Syria. Now, in, uh, in Donetsk, especially the first night in Donetsk, you have to realize that, that sound travels further at night. It can be heard more easily at a distance. So you'd be sitting in what was a fine hotel, uh, a couple of them that I've been in now in Donetsk, uh, in, in the middle of town. One is the uh, Stalichny. This, is, this was a great hotel, uh, and is. Uh, but you'd be sitting, you'd be you know, trying to go to sleep in your room, and you'd begin to hear artillery fire, right? You'd begin to hear boom, boom, boom. And that was either 150 millimeter artillery or some kind of rocket, maybe a grad being fired, hard to tell. And then you'd hear this constant chatter of small arms fire, like ping pong balls, like pop, 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 pop. And uh, with the, um, the winds blowing a little bit and the uh, night air carrying the sound, you get to think that that stuff was pretty close. So that was, that was one thing, to be in your hotel room. But then you'd go out to the northwest of the city of Donetsk. And this is the area which is opposite the Prokofiev uh, International Airport. Now, people remember Sergei Prokofiev, right? Lieutenant Kiji Sweet. He's a very interesting composer that I've always liked, going back as far as I can remember. Uh, this Prokofiev was from Donetsk. So uh, the airport is named after him. Now, the other thing, though, is you go to the neighborhoods that are close to the airport. The airport is a battleground. Uh, the, the one thing that, that shields you a little bit is that there are these slag berms, by which I mean the byproduct of coal mining is slag. It's kind of cinders and mud and other stuff. And as you go around in the, in the Donetsk uh, province, you got to realize this is one of the biggest coal mining regions in the world. And it, it was, under the Soviets, it was probably the most industrialized region of the world, right? More than anything in the U.S., because you had the coal coming up in the Donetsk area and the iron ore in this area of Krivoy Rog, uh, somewhat uh, west. And those two things together, the coal and the iron, make, meant steel, and the Soviets uh, wanted this, right? And there was also this, this huge dam on the Dnieper River, which was providing the, uh, the hydroelectric. So... You go to the north northwest side of Donetsk, and you get yourself into a neighborhood like the 
Oktyabrskaya, right? The October Revolution uh, neighborhood of town, or Spartak, close close to that. So you're very close to the airport where the fighting is going on all day long, where snipers are, are at work, right? We saw one of the things we examined was a sniper rifle uh, of German manufacture, right? A extremely deadly thing um, that had been captured, right? Because the the sniper had been uh, eliminated, right? So they got the they got the rifle and brought it back. So uh, all kinds of shooting going on, but the the slag berm protects you. In other words, it's like a a mountain several hundred feet high between the main shooting and you. Except that the the time I was there, we were able to go to this Achavarskaya neighborhood. You talk to old people, talk to pensioners. You go down into these. They, these are not really fallout shelters or blast shelters. They have in the basement of the apartment houses, there are these sort of nooks or places where you can take cover, but the air is bad, smells bad, um, you don't want to be there. But a lot of them live down there because if you go up into your house, you might get a, a rocket or a, or a shell through the window. So um, in my case, you could hear the, um, the boom, 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 but they were shooting over our heads. Uh, about two weeks after I was there, another group came through under the same auspices of this uh, Moscow agency, which was you know, trying to counteract the uh, anti-Russian propaganda in the world by, by taking people there right? and, and showing them what was what, right? showing the other side. So um, a group of people, including foreign journalists and uh, women, were in this Akhtabarsky area and somehow the Ukrainian fascist side saw these people and they began shooting at them with fairly heavy artillery and trying to kill them. So they had to they had to rush into the underground shelters of these apartment buildings and stay there for hours uh, until they could come out. Right? I think they might have had to stay until the, the sun went down right? so they, they could get out of there. But that's the kind of thing. Uh, that you have. And again, compared to Libya and Syria, I, I was under more fire, right? I was getting shot at more in Ukraine, in Donetsk People's Republic in particular. So that's going on. And they, you know, it, it flares up and then it, it flares down. Um, I don't see any evidence of Russian troops. I didn't see any. Um, I think I might have some way to tell for various reasons. You can tell differences in the, in the local accent. Um, the Russian uniforms were nowhere to be found, Russian vehicles with Russian markings, none of those, not in the city of Donetsk or anywhere nearby. So I think that's about what it is. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, From Donetsk to Athens, Popular Governments Challenge Privately Controlled Central Banks. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We've talked about the social revolution in Donetsk. Now, Greece has just had a popular referendum. How was the referendum worded? What did it say exactly? What was the choice? Well, I have to say, I have not read the, the uh, excruciating details of this, but the, the, the point of it was to say to the Greek people, do you accept the last offer made by the so-called institutions. The institutions are the institutions formerly known as the Troika, and they are the International Monetary Fund, the worldwide enforcer 
of monetarism, neoliberalism, and looting. Right? The European Central Bank, which is the European regional version of that, it is the place where the euro is administered. It is an engine of deflation, exploitation, falling standards of living, and the European Commission. These are the Eurocrats, or as I like to call them, the Eurogarchs, because they are the Brussels bureaucracy. It's a series of sort of ministerial posts. One is uh, economics, one is finance, one is foreign policy, and you, you get the idea. And it's current was led by this Portuguese quasi-fascist Barroso in recent years, but now it is the Luxembourg former Prime Minister Juncker. And you have to know, the main thing you have to know about Luxembourg is the main thing in Luxembourg is that it, it's an offshore banking paradise. So if the president of the European Commission is a Luxembourgeois, he represents the Luxembourgeoisie, and he, uh, he imposes what, uh, what the bankers want. So the idea was, Greeks, do you accept or reject the recent austerity proposal, which would cut your pensions, cut your wages? It would, uh, among other things, it would have deprived the Greek islands, which are tourist destinations, their special status under certain kinds of taxation. And the, the taxation would be if... You're a Greek island, you pay a lower value-added tax than the mainland. And if it's your Mykonos or your uh, Crete or places like this, right? These legendary uh, Naxos, whatever you want. All of those people pay a lower, we would say sales tax, but it's, it's actually a little bit different. It's the value-added tax. And it looks like part of the surprise in this vote was that the Greek islands, which do have people... They voted, you know, at extremely high levels for uh, the no. The no was no to austerity, no to diktat, no to the Brussels Commission, no to Mrs. Merkel of Germany, the austerity ghoul, no to her ideologue, uh, finance minister Wolfgang Schäuble, the guy in the wheelchair that you see. These are both... Um, Twisted personalities, I would say. They, they are um, riding a wave of vendetta and xenophobic hatred of Greece. Um, they are both servants of the banks. In particular, Mrs. Merkel was brought in by a guy called Josef Ackermann, who was the head of the Deutsche Bank. That is the biggest bank in Germany and one of the very biggest in Europe. It is a European zombie bank uh, to all intents and purposes. So between them, Merkel and, and um, Schäuble have imposed these austerity packages. And you just, you just have to remember that the, the uh, debt of Greece, state debt now, is held by Germany first, France second, Italy third. And in particular, we just have the very revealing quotes from a member of the board of the International Monetary Fund. Right? This is a Brazilian his name is Paulo Batista. And this Batista says, look here, you have to know that the main purpose of the Greek bailout was not a bailout of Greece. It was a bailout of the top German and French banks who held the debt. So it's exactly what we see here in the United States. It's the, the um, privatization of profits, as long as that can be done, and then the socialization of the losses. 
And in particular, it meant that after Lehman Brothers blew up in 2008 and 2009, by the time you got to 2010, you had this sovereign debt crisis, so-called, right? Greece, Portugal, Spain, others, Italy. A lot of that was targeted speculative attacks using, in particular, credit default swaps to go into a market. For example, the market for Greek government bonds in Athens is a very small market. It is not broad. It is not deep. It is not liquid. So a small attack using credit default swaps to imply that these bonds are worth much less than they really are is enough to, uh, to cause tremendous dislocation, tremendous shock, tremendous losses. And way back when, on my website, tarpley.net, we had an account on the front page of the Wall Street Journal talking about an idea dinner held at the um, facilities of a brokerage firm, Moness, Crespi, and Hart, where a group of hedge fund hyenas and zombie bankers were meeting to say, how can we essentially speculate on a debt crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, and it was a government debt crisis in Greece and these other countries, which they were planning to create. So it worked. The government in those days in Greece was the reactionary new democracy of a guy called Samaras. He just quit yesterday because his, his austerity policies were repudiated. He quit as head of his party. He had been thrown out uh, in January as, as prime minister. This Samaras was a banker's boy, 1,000%. He gave the banks everything they wanted. And what they wanted was to take their rotten, bankrupt, kited derivatives and turn those into Greek government bonds. And that's what was done. So instead of saying to those bankers, you made the loans, you're left holding the bag, you go bankrupt or you eat the losses, all of that was socialized onto the backs of the Greek population. And then, in order to procure the liquidity, the cash to pay these extravagant debt payments, debt service and so forth, then the austerity ghouls went into action and said, now you've got to privatize, sell off for bargain basement prices or for nothing, all your assets. You've got to sell your ports to foreigners, to the Chinese and others. You've got to massively fire people in your state bureaucracy, right? Bureaucrats and so forth, teachers. You've got to savagely cut your government health programs. We just have a, a report in the Huffington Post that uh, malaria, HIV, and tuberculosis are growing by leaps and bounds in Greece under the, the uh, Troika or institutional uh, bailout program. So um, it's the same story as it always has been with austerity. Austerity is a blind alley. It simply does not work. It's impossible. And it, you'll actually, you're going to go, you're going to have less chance of collecting any of the debt service with austerity uh, than you would under some other system, right? In other words, uh, any system is, is better than, than austerity. Austerity simply is a blind alley and it, it never allows you to, uh, to get out of it, right? You get into a death spiral and that's exactly where Greece was. Now, uh, we've talked in the past about Syriza, right? We've done, a, I think we've done a whole program on that. So along comes Syriza with Alexis Tsipras and company. And correctly, they say their principal strategy element is don't be complicit in austerity, fight austerity. So 
I, I think, if anything, the, the Tsipras and, uh, and company leadership, they might have had some confusion about the real criminal character of people like Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank from Goldman Sachs or this unfortunate lady, Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, accused of all kinds of corruption in her native France. By the time we got to January, the Syriza government came in. I think they thought that somebody would negotiate in good faith. But then we saw that the situation was that these Eurogarchs and Eurocrats, I just went through the catalog, they refused to bargain in good faith in any way. They would not bargain in good faith. And their, their goal was not even economic. It was regime change. It was Syriza is in there. They're, they're defying us. They're not kowtowing. They're challenging our power. Get rid of them, crush them, destroy them. And that is why we've had this process of, of negotiation. The guiding principle of the entire Eurogark uh, bureaucracy, uh, including Merkel, including Hollande, including the European Central Bank, they were guided by one thing, regime change. So the United States has one way of doing regime change, right? You go in and bomb everybody and send in the Marines and overthrow the government. Or uh, if that's uh, not recommended, then you can try a color revolution, right? You send in Gene Sharp, you send in the, uh, you know, the human rights people, and you can gin up a, uh, a color revolution and try to overthrow the government that way, right? Send in marketing experts, right? Is it going to be orange? Is it going to be roses? Is it going to be cedars, right? And you, you play that to the hilt. The Europeans do it differently. The Europeans do economic warfare and strangulation. And uh, that is what they've done. So their goal was to humiliate and destroy the Syriza party to break up the Greek government and force them out of power. And that's it. So um, that is then uh, in the past week or so, uh, Tsipras, I think, finally seeing that the tactics of the Eurogarchs were so extreme that he had to somehow go back and get uh, a, a new mandate from the Greek population right, as, as they faced these these deadlines. Now, during this summer, the total amount of money the Greeks are supposed to cough up based on these extorted loans that were signed by the right-wing wrecker, Samaras, it's about 20 billion, 22 billion uh, euros. So it's, say, 25 billion uh, US dollars, something like this. Uh, this cannot be paid. It's physically impossible. Cannot be done. Not in the material universe as we know it. You can't get blood out of a stone. You can't get blood out of a turnip. You can't get $25 billion out of the Greek economy with an unemployment rate of 25%. That 25% is about as bad as it got in the United States in the Great Depression. And in the United States in the Great Depression, people were not calling for more austerity and more killer cuts and more genocide and more suicide. They were calling for some kind of relief. So the uh, Syriza principle is the Greek debt should be cut in half by 50%, that this is an illegitimate debt. I mean, I think you could go further, but 50% is a good uh, starting point. Let, let's cut 50% and see where we go from there. Now, is that extraordinary? Well, no. Uh, General Motors, in order to survive, received a write-down, a cut of its debt by 50%. 
when you see this from the point of view of the bondholders, it's called a haircut. And it says that you, you know, you're going to have your, your bond holdings cut uh, in half or whatever it is. Same thing with Chrysler. Chrysler got a write down, a cut of their debt by about 50%. So you can see it's a normal thing. Uh, when Donald uh, Trump went bankrupt with his hotel empire in the early 90s, he got debt relief. He was given various forms of uh, rescheduling and changing the rules and technical adjustments and all this. There's nothing out of the ordinary. And especially in terms of the morality, there was a London debt conference in 1953 attended by all the European countries and the U.S. Now, a lot of these countries had just been occupied and targeted by the Nazis from Germany for genocide. Nevertheless, the realism in those days, and the Soviet threat, I guess, helped a lot too, that um, at the London Debt Conference of 1953, Germany, fresh from Nazi crimes, was given a 50% debt write-down. And countries like Spain and Greece voted, yes, give those Germans a 50% cut in debt. So you can see that there's a, uh, a double standard being used here, right? The German population is so allegedly so self-righteous if they read the Bildzeitung and the Springer Press, right? They're full of uh, rage against the lazy Greeks. And of course, this is simply divide and conquer. And the stupidity of German public opinion is that they don't seem to see that the Greeks get about 10% of this money. That's the estimate. That of the money that was given to Greece, right, the 250 or 300 billion euros that they were given under the bailout program, 90% of that never left Frankfurt, never left Paris, never left Berlin, never left Milan. It stayed there to pay the debt. And the Greeks were lucky to get 10%, which was nothing compared to what they were sacrificing through the killer cuts. So at the end of this, you're talking about genocide. Once again, you're, you're getting into Nuremberg territory, whether you like it or not. So at that point, uh, Tsipras said, let's have the uh, referendum and the no vote won. So that's where we are. Now, there's, there's one other element, but let's see how, we, how we've done up to this point. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, From Donetsk to Athens, Popular Governments Challenge Privately Controlled Central Banks. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, let me ask you this. Um, when banks lend money that they know cannot be repaid, isn't this illegal? Isn't that called uh, fraudulent inducement? Yes, it is. And that is, I think, one of the things that everyone should remember is that if, if you have a default on a large scale, you cannot say that the borrower is the guilty party and that the lender is somehow exempt from all responsibility. And that is the logic of the debt, uh, the haircut, the debt write-down, right? The debt relief, as we've talked about it. Cypress has said, as of uh, in the aftermath of the referendum, that, um, that the, the question of debt relief will remain on the table from now on. That they're simply not going to have negotiations that do not include debt relief. Now, of course, crazy Madame Merkel in Berlin says, oh, no, we can't talk about any debt relief. No debt relief for you. 
And then they tap her on the shoulder and they say, Mrs. Merkel, the Ukrainians are here looking for debt relief. And she says, oh, well, that's a different story. Those are fascists who are working for us against uh, Putin. You see, it's a, it's absolutely crazy. So uh, it's a terrible uh, double standard. And again, General Motors, Chrysler, uh, and so forth. So um, the notion of the morality play, right, that some people are profligate and they live beyond their means and they're improvident and those Greeks and they retire at such an early age. And a lot of this stuff is, is completely uh, made up. But in any case, uh, whether a Greek got to retire at 58 or 62, this has almost no no impact on this. In other words, the, the amounts of money that you can get by making the poor Greek work two or three more years will never come close to this colossal debt burden. And again, it is physically impossible to repay this. Why even try? Well, the answer again is, is um, that they want regime change. Now, here's the thing that I would like to stress, though. In the wake of the magnificent vote by the Greek people, right, that they, uh, they, they had the moral intelligence and the civic courage to stand up and say no. Notice, they don't say we want to leave the euro. No, 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 not at all. They want to stay in the euro. I think they're right. It's better to stay in the euro, provided that you're going to assemble a united front of countries to take over the European Central Bank. That's your goal. The European Central Bank is right now under Draghi or under Trichet previously, the enemy. You've got to take that over. Who are you going to have with you? Well, you're going to, you're going to hope for the Bloco de Esquerda of Portugal. Hope they win. We got to hope that the Podemos in Spain wins. But now here's the thing. In the past uh, 24 hours, we have this uh, interesting phenomenon that a group inside Syriza, having won the uh, referendum, but having also seen that the Eurogarchs and Eurocrats are as bad as ever. They don't want to uh, accept the results of this vote, right? They don't care, right? You see these people, I could go through the list of names again. They're all just as idiotic and obsessive as they as they were uh, before. So now you have to face this fact. Um, what are you going to do if Merkel and Schäuble remain crazy? And here, here's the thing. There's no way to kick a country out of the European uh, Union, nor to kick a, a country out of the Euro zone, Euro land or European Monetary Union, the countries that use the Euro, right? In the European Union, we have, you know, Britain, Poland, they have their own currency, but then there's the Eurozone. There's no prescribed way to expel anybody. So it's not like they're going to have a vote and say, you Greeks have violated our European rules because you are lazy and you didn't pay and you defaulted last week on $1.7 billion to the IMF, so you're out. No, it's going to be silent bureaucrats at the European Central Bank in Frankfurt working for Draghi, Draghi of Goldman Sachs, I might add, because that's where he spent his career. They simply cut off the money, and it's called ELA, Emergency Liquidity Assistance. That's the money that goes from Frankfurt to the Central Bank in Athens, right? The Bank of Greece still exists. 
the Bank of France exists, the Bundesbank, the Banca d'Italia. Those all exist. They are kind of vestigial, and they have been to a large extent uh, sort of subsumed under the uh, overarching European Central Bank headquarters in uh, Frankfurt. So um, this uh, situation now is that if you want to have liquidity in Greece, you theoretically ought to get it from the European Central Bank. However, in, in, in Europe, the task of printing the money has been farmed out still to these vestigial national central banks, including the Bank of Greece. So now here's, here's what we have. According to an article in the London Sunday Telegraph of yesterday, we are told uh, that Greece may soon run out of money. What do they do if they run out of money? In other words, cash, right? Banknotes or money in, in all of its forms. We're told that there's a discussion, there's a debate between the finance minister Varoufakis, who since has quit, quit 12 hours ago, right? Uh, that this Varoufakis said, well, if we run out of money, we can do what California did in 2008 when Lehman Brothers exploded and when Wall Street shut down and the money center banks shut down, the zombie banks, as I would call them, the state of California issued IOUs to suppliers, to contractors, and so forth. Now, what we're getting from, from Varoufakis is to say we should do the California IOUs. Now, I would have to say that's a bad idea. That's not going to work for any length of time. I would call that funny money. I would call that script. It's script. There's no doubt. That's exactly what script means. Or chits. Uh, and you're going to have a hard time with this. But is there an alternative, right? But what we find out in the same article by Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who is somebody who I've known for, uh, known of and known for decades. He's somebody with rather, rather intense uh, relations with the British intelligence world, if you see what I'm getting at. Um, so he said, look, there's also a more radical group inside Syriza. And now let's focus on this group. The radical group inside Syriza wants what? Ambrose Evans Pritchard said what they want is, first of all, to nationalize all the banks, all the commercial banks, right? They get nationalized. Now, it sounds like Donetsk, huh? Sounds good. I think that, that sounds pretty good. But then there's more. Then they say the hysterical propaganda has been coming from various reactionary news organs who say that the Cyprus model of two years ago is going to be repeated in Greece. And it means what they call a bail-in. In other words, if you have more than 8,000 euros in your account, somebody's going to come and steal everything over 8,000. Right? It's a recipe for a banking panic. It's insane. It's also theft. You can't do this. Right? You can't steal money from people at that level. So the radical group inside Syriza says, we don't want any part of that. We're not going to steal anybody's bank account. We don't want to bail in. No bail in. So otherwise, what can they do? The answer, according to this group, is to say, let's look at the emergency clauses of the Treaty of Lisbon, right? We got to go back and look at these treaties under which the, the European Union operates, right? The Treaty of Rome in the 50s, 
the Treaty of Maastricht around 1990. And then more recently, in the past, what, five or six years, there's been the Treaty of Lisbon. And under that, there are emergency clauses, right? There are emergency paragraphs that say, if the center is knocked out, then these peripheral institutions, like the Bank of Greece, could indeed do what? They have the printing presses and they have the plates, in the case of Greece, to print 20 euro notes. So they could start printing them under a legal argument saying that the, uh, the European Central Bank under Draghi is refusing for reasons of blackmail and extortion to provide us with our currency needs. So what is, what is Draghi bound to do? If you look in, the, in these statutes, you're going to find it says the European Central Bank will, is obligated to, provide currency and liquidity to all the member states. Well, they're not doing that, are they? They've reneged. They have committed dereliction of duty. They have done the dereliction of their, um, you know, their treaty responsibilities. They can't do this. And you can see, it, this is what you get into when you run the European Commission and the European Central Bank as essentially a debt collection agency and a regime change agency. You get into uh, contradictions of this type. So you want to sue Draghi in the European court, uh, and you want to do some other uh, some other lawsuits along the same lines. Now, that came out yesterday in the London Sunday Telegraph, written by this uh, somewhat notorious uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard, right? And then, uh, six or seven hours after that, we have the fall of Varoufakis. Now, today, the London Daily Telegraph says that they're claiming responsibility for the fall of Varoufakis. They said it was the, the threat to launch the California-style IOUs that got Varoufakis fired. And I'm sorry, I think it has something more to do with this uh, extremely interesting hypothesis of, after all, attacking the central bank, attacking the European central bank by carving off a piece and, and using it, right? Using it to provide for your liquidity needs. I think that's legal. Uh, I think those are the sorts of things that take place in crisis conditions, and God knows we are. And uh, they have a word for it. They call it requisitioning, to requisition the central bank. If you're in an emergency, you can't wait for the bankers to make up their minds because they're, of course, blinded by greed. So you've got to have the state power, you've got to have a statist approach. Yes, indeedy, a statist approach to go into that central bank and say, all right, guys, you're going to put aside your, you know, your bank competition motives. We're going to run this place in the public interest. And that means start up those printing presses. We are requisitioning you. We are commandeering you. Now, you know my characteristic um, talk about this stuff, right? I've talked about nationalizing the Federal Reserve federalizing the Federal Reserve, deprivatizing the Federal Reserve, right? Seize it, get control of it. Now we find, after years and years of this agitation, that here's a group reported in, uh, in, in this case in Greece, that wants to do that. They want to use the crisis to say, look, 
you, Draghi, have run afoul of this delicate technicality. You're cutting off our liquidity, and they are. They, they just announced it again today. European Central Bank says they're going to provide very low levels of currency input to Greece, despite the fact that they need it. Well, that's illegal. So at that point, we, uh, you know, we get into the area of um, you know, the preponderance of the equities, and the preponderance of the equities are that Greece must live. This is more important than the technical rules of the Eurogarchs, Eurocrats, and, uh, and Eurobankers there in, in Frankfurt. And that's where we are tonight. It's about this question. Somebody is going to have to begin attriting, let's say, the power, the overweening and illegal power of these uh, privately owned and lawless central banks, right? And the only way it's ever going to happen, you can see it again and again, is under crisis and breakdown conditions. So I embrace this uh, faction in Syriza, if that's what it is. Uh, this, this would be to show humanity the way out of the crisis, right? To get out of the world depression before it turns into dictatorships everywhere and indeed uh, probable World War III, which is what happens if you let these things fester for too long. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been From Donetsk to Athens, Popular Governments Challenge Privately Controlled Central Banks. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History, 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, Obama, The Unauthorized Biography, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. Webster Tarpley is a leader and activist with the United Front Against Austerity at againstausterity.org. Visit his website at tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaro Mako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. You dig me? You got me?